0: Hi, you're listening to Open Micers. I'm Jacob Craig, and we're all alone. Do you want to help us support this show? Do you like listening to us every week? Of course you do. You're here now, aren't you? Give us some money on Patreon, so we'll be here next week. And I love you. I love you, too.
1: (laughs) I love you, too! How we doing, guys? Good. How are you? Great, man. Happy to be here with you guys. Happy out. It's a beautiful day. I have a glass of wine with ice wine with ice i've never done that before (laughs) i know it's like (laughs) goofy it's goofy but you know i I don't know i kind of i like it now i've kind of gotten in it's red you know they do that with white wine but i i don't know i just kind of like it and it kind of just waters it down and becomes a Hmm. little uh uh sangria like right but i like it oh i like that i might try that myself Come on, <laughs> but first one's free, buddy. First one's free.
2: Oh yeah, well it, it is Thursday night, and you know that music means it is open micers' time. My name is Jason Robbins. I'm Jacob Craig, and our guest tonight is a saxophonist and rhythm guitar player who has
0: toured with the likes of Pink Floyd, Supertramp, and Toto. He is also an adjunct professor at the University of Southern California's Thornton School of Music and the CEO of media company Thank Exp. Guys. All those credentials, it can only mean Mr. Scott Page.
1: Welcome Ooh, to da, da, the show. Da, da, da. Ladies thank and you gentlemen. for being oh. here. Oh, thank you very much. Thank you. Yeah, actually, I just want to correct one thing. Um, I did, I was at USC. I'm not doing that. I just, I came out and I, I taught some classes there and then I'm not doing that anymore. So I'm not an adjunct professor there anymore, but I was. So I don't know, the Wikipedia, wherever I guess you're getting that, they still say that that's the case, but. Hopefully they'll straighten that out. Yeah, but- I was
2: gonna say, you know, coming into the this interview, I've been excited about this interview all week because you played with some of the, some of my favorite bands and musicians, and your your resume is it's like a it's like a Lord of the Rings book. I mean, I don't even know where to start. It's a, there's just so much stuff here. Um yeah. I, I mean I I'm gonna start off with the obvious. Um, you uh have played with some of the greatest. Rock and roll bands of all time. I mean, mainly one of the biggest, Pink Floyd. So, just kind of tell me how that happened.
1: Okay, yeah, Uh, you know that's actually a funny story. I've told this quite a bit. Um, I was uh, playing with Supertramp, and we were doing a Supertramp album, and Dave Gilmore was a uh, was brought on as a guest. So I was in the studio up at Rick's house. He had a beautiful studio in his house, Rick Davies. And uh Gilmore was there. He went and put the guitar solo on the uh on the Super Tramp record and we hung out. And then that night I had a club gig just down the street that I do with this band I had at the time called the Hang Dynasty, which was Jeff Baxter from the Doobie Brothers and you know, a whole bunch a bunch of great players. And we came beside so I invited him down that night. So he came down, hung out. And then um I had another thing. A week later, I was doing this big show called the uh uh first dance, which was a uh a big production I was putting on it. Um at Guitar Center, Los Angeles, which was really experimenting with this whole idea that I was working with, with zooming microphones and kind of MIDI based tripod systems in order to create sound and picture. So I invited Dave down there. Well, it happened to be a week later, Jeff Beccaro, which we were talking about just a little while ago, uh, was playing on the Pink Floyd record. And then he said, oh, I got to leave my friend Scott. I've got this big show I'm going to do. He said, oh yeah, Scott invited me. So he came with Dave. Dave and him came to the show, saw the show, A couple days later, um, I get a call uh, to go play, put a solos, you know, put some solos on the Pink Floyd record. So I went into the, I went in the studio, put the solos on, did all of that. uh, That's, you know, I did the session.
2: Which uh, which record was that? That was a
1: momentary lapse of reason. Okay. Yeah. So the later years. Um, So um, I went and did that. And then a couple days, two or three days later, I get called the English guy on the phone. It's Dave Gilmore. Mm -hmm. And he says, well, we're getting it ready to go out on this two-year tour and stuff and we'd love you to come join the band and all of that and I said yeah Dave let me think about it because here's the funny part I knew nothing about Pink Floyd (laughs) I mean I I mean really nothing other than I remember I think I said geez I think I heard a song have a cigar I remembered that kind of remembered hearing that once but I really knew nothing I was you know coming out of the school of you know being a saxophone player I was more into R&B and funk and you know Junior Walker and studying all my kind of r&b and, and rock guys but i never really paid much attention to the uh, you know sort of that psychedelic kind of the floyd stuff so i said yeah dave let me think about it so i called some friends of mine up and i called the one guy my one buddy up and i said yeah i said i played on this record last week i did this this pink floyd record he said, did you play it on a pink floyd record I said, yeah he says <laughs> i said yeah and then dave gilmer he's the guitar player i said and he He called me up and wants me to go do this tour, but it's like go out on the road for two years. And I'm like, man, that's like leap two year gig. That's a big, long commitment. And he's like, dude, you got to do that gig. I said, I don't really know much about that. What's the story. So he starts telling me about him. So, wow, it sounds cool. So I went to tower records that night and bought some records, brought them back, listened to them. And I said, okay, that sounds good. But everybody I talked to, they said, dude, you got to do that. So that thing. So I called Dave up. I said, okay, I'm in, let's go. And, Thank you God.
2: <laughs> I had
1: no idea it so how many but That's how that happened anyway.
2: How many rehearsals did you do before before heading out on that, that tour or was it one of those oh, things well, you were kind of thrown into the thrown through the wolves?
1: Well, you know, it was interesting cuz the tour we we rehearsed in Toronto in actually in an airplane hangar out on the tarmac at the at the, at the international airport. So we'd have to go there, and and we'd have to get shuttled out in between 747s, you know, to get out to this place, big, giant thing. And when I went in there, I remember the first day I went in, there, I walked in, I went, "Oh my God, look at this man! There's flying pigs, and there's all this <laughs> crazy stuff. The wildest lighting, it's just a massive stage, like just insane." And I look behind me, I'm looking at this, and then I look behind me, 745s are going by the window, and wow. I'm, I finally said, "Boy, this is crazy, cool." And um, you know. Like I said, I'm very thankful for that gig, and it was great. So we rehearsed. I think we were rehearsed. I can't remember. Was it maybe six weeks, something like that, some kind of thing like that before, and then we did our first shows in Toronto. To be honest, I don't really remember exactly how long the rehearsals were, but it was a a trip. It was definitely a trip.
2: I can imagine that was probably uh, anxiety-inducing before going. Well, you
1: know what's so fascinating about Pink Floyd for me was it's actually the easiest job I've ever had because Dave said you play solos all just here's point to me and play right and so it was really it was really it was a cake gig and he never really told me what to play which I really appreciated he always cool. wanted me to wear my own clothes you know he didn't want me to be you know like Dick Perry the original guy and although I yeah, I would always take and play a little bit of Dick Perry in the beginning of the solos so that it was there was a, 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 a people that know those songs would do it but then i would just take my own thing and make it up but uh yeah it was uh that was a great gig i just played solos, and then i played rhythm guitar and stuff on that too and that was always fun i mean i used to love to just kind of during comfortably numb stroll over and stand in front of dave's amp in front yeah. when the solo was rocking right I, I oh my god that was the greatest uh... feeling was hearing that freaking guitar amp in my bag <laughs> you know, the, the greatest tone in the world. Right. Oh, and yeah. Dave, you know, he's my, he's really one of my music guru mentors. I, I mean, I learned a ton from him and the main thing I learned and he basically changed all my playing because he's the master of melody, yeah, feel and melody. Right. It's not like you never see him with all that stuff and mm-hmm. nothing can fall, but he always plays those beautiful melodies that anybody can pay attention to. You can all yeah hear them. And it's so interesting because when you hear like Comfortably Numb, if you don't hear that guitar solo in the middle, it's like there's somebody didn't sing the lyric, Yeah, right? You, the words were left out. So he really made me start to think about how to play in a different way. So I really tried to be much more musical in sense from a point of view of being more melodic and try to play things that people could hear. And I've taken that with me ever since because I, I think that's really the, for me, is really important.
2: Yeah, not, and, you know, I don't think, I think among guitar players, you know, David Gilmore is is held in such high regard, but for like oh, the man. general public, he's very underrated. Like not a lot of you say David Gilmore, not a lot of people know who you're talking about, unless you say Pink Floyd, and then they're like, oh yeah, yeah. But you know, that's why that guy ends up on every single, you know, top, you know, one hundred guitarists of all time or whatever. Like oh, yeah. that dude is just you he's one of those people kinda like he's like Eddie Van Halen. Like you hear him play and you know it's him he's got that tone he's got that you know that feel like everything he plays is like oh yeah that's that's david you could pick him out anywhere Well,
1: that's always the the state but if you think of all the great musicians you know they they have something of their own sound they've got Mm -hmm. their own thing they they kind of it's unique in its sense and same with singers and everybody else when you hear that unique tone sound vibe feel And Dave is definitely, you know, has his thing. And I mean, I mean, all the great guitar players I know, you know, look to him for that type of playing for that when they're in that space. But yeah, Dave's, Dave's incredible, incredible.
2: And to be in your position to be, you know, right along with that guy and just have, you know, learning. Just soaking up everything like a sponge oh, yeah. is just that's oh, got, yeah. that's an opportunity of a lifetime, man. You know, getting
1: up there and trading fours and stuff with them, you know, blowing on tunes together—it was
2: crazy cool, right? That's you amazing. Yeah, and yep. I'm hogging the interview again, Jacob. You, you got some come questions. on, Jacob. <laughs> he he here, always buddy. does this. He always does this, he especially does this. when we have
0: musicians and actors. He thinks he's the only one here. You're not, Jason. <laughs> Take a drink of water, buddy.
1: Fine. All I'm right, so- here he comes. I'm in the hot okay. seat now. I'm, I can tell you're I'm in the hot about...
0: seat now. So, uh, your dad was also a musician, a saxophonist, yeah. Mr. Bill Page. Correct. He, for people who don't know at home, played with uh, the Tonight Show band for Johnny Carson.
1: Well, he, well, actually, my dad, let me go back. My dad was a performer on the Johnny Carson show, but he was in. I, I grew up on television on a show called the Lawrence Welk Show. It's Lawrence Welk. Lawrence Welk. Everybody remembers. that it was one of the early, early, early shows when there was only seven channels on yeah. television, right? And uh, it was a weekly uh, show on the weekend. And so, and I guess one of the funny parts about that is my biggest claim to. I guess one of my claim to fames is I'm the only guy that played in. Pink Floyd and Lawrence Welk, right? So I had to, because when I was a little kid, we used to do the Christmas shows and stuff like that. And I'd come out and play stuff with my dad. That's, That's when I was a trumpet player, before that I was sounds like trumpet player.
2: A, that sounds like a Jeopardy question. Yeah, it is. It's kind of funny. Who is the one guy that yeah. played with Pink Floyd and Lawrence yeah. Welk? That is a Jeopardy
1: question. drum roll, please. We know who that is. Uh, But yeah, my dad, um, my dad actually started the whole concept of amplified wind instruments. Right. So he started that whole deal. And uh, he had started in that band. It was the Bill Page Ampliphonic Orchestra. Uh, He was, you know, uh, you ever heard of the Studio Sound City?
2: Yes. Right. Okay, that was my
1: that's where I grew up. That was my dad's studio. Really? It was called the Vox Sound Lab, where he developed believe it or not, him and Brad Plunkett, Plunkett developed the wah-wah pedal. Really? Right. Yeah. So he was the inventor of the wah-wah And actually that very first recording of the wah-wah was done on a bassoon. And a song was called the wah-wah doozy. And I actually just found a box of these things, all these 45s of that original wah-wah song. But, uh, but the reason I'm bringing that up is when you mentioned uh, the Johnny Carson show. So this was a kind of a big deal, this new amplified instrument, the wah-wah pedal. So my dad was, he was brought on guest several times uh, to do as a performer on the Tonight Show. So he wasn't in the Tonight Show band, although he was over at NBC staff and did a lot of shows there later on because he was a really incredible musician. And he did the light opera season at the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion and did studio sessions and stuff for years. But that's right. how the, the Tonight Show thing happened. Got you. My mistake. As you can tell, no, no, tell, I'm just I'm gr- a- I just don't want people to think that I get it yeah. goofed up there. That's all. Be clear. Oh no, I'm an
0: amazing interviewer. I'm so good at my job. <laughs> dude,
1: I can Jacob, I got to tell you. Dude, I, I I am I have I have to say I've done quite a few of these that this is definitely one of them.
0: <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. But anyways, my uh my core question was did your dad ever come home with any, you know, crazy stories about his performances or or Johnny Carson or anything like that?
1: Oh, I mean, it was always there was actually it was interesting, you know, because in those days it was all about the big band. Right. There was big bands. It wasn't like the standard, you know, rock was just sort of coming in back there in the in the early 50s. Right. And um, well, 50s rock was happening, but big bands were still big. right? right. Um, and so actually he did. Um, he was because he traveled for years. He was also with uh, Judy Garland and traveled with Guys and Dolls. Uh, Back in the day. And so there was all these stories and he actually did a pilot for a television show, which was actually one of the first or second shows ever shot on videotape. And it was a pilot and it was called Music Man Take 10. And it was all about the stories that my dad gathered and all these guys while touring with big bands around the around the country. And, you know, it was like funny things, the bands, you know, they get on the bus and they'd all play their instruments and they mm-hmm. did all this stuff. But, you know, he always told me stories that one day the the tuba guy got outdoor and blah, blah, blah. And he hit the button, the drawbridge, the the drawbridge went up, you know? So <laughs> there, I mean, there were some stories. There's a few that I, I shouldn't really talk about because <laughs> I don't want to incriminate, but uh, anyway, yeah. Uh, you know, uh, it was different then, right? It was, you know, the big bands were not quite like, you know, hardcore rock and roll, drugs, sex, rock. And so it was a little different back in those days. Um, although there were some pretty ins- crazy scenes that would go on in the jazz world, but, you know, mostly, um, you know, I'm trying to think of any crazy stories that he told me you know, I, you know, I can't think of any really just that would be, the Twitch crowd would love. Let's yeah, say. Yeah, I can't really imagine
2: uh, Lawrence Welk getting crazy with the <laughs> backstage. Well,
1: you know, yeah, I mean it wasn't that, but I mean interesting thing is when you know when we were on that show every year the Dodge Corporation would give everybody in the band a car. Really? So we would get a new car nice. every year. Why that would happen? And then I remember one year they got everybody the same color car, right? Every everybody had the same car, the same color oh. one, right? And so when they pulled in the parking lot, this is a big band, you know, it's twenty something pieces plus everybody else, and you could never figure out which cars were yours.: so Oh no, <laughs>
0: that's um, definitely a corporate oversight. <laughs>
2: so did um, did your work with Pink Floyd lead to work with uh, Toto, or was that? No, was I actually played with
1: Toto for, er, early on. I mean, my first kind of big gig uh that was there was with a band called seals and crofts mm-hmm. so i played with seals i toured with seals and crofts i played with them for a few, summer years, a few years summer breeze <laughs> Summer Breeze. yeah and then i i went off and i started conducting for david soul i don't know if you remember david soul oh, he david was soul. the uh don't give up on us with starsky and hutch
2: yes of course right, yes. Remember? <laughs>
1: yeah so he was one of the two guys and uh david and we toured the world with him and i was conducting for him at the time and kind of put the band together uh, and let me see. Then I went to, uh, let's see from that. I, I played with a variety of different people. Everybody, I did gigs with Chuck Berry and James Brown and, you know, uh, it just go. you know, as a player out there doing things. And then, uh, I was, I got into super, I, I started playing with Diana Ross. That really? was it. I played with Diana Ross. And, uh, while we were in Vegas, I got a call from, uh, Bob Siebenberg, who's the drummer in Supertramp, who I'd met a few years back in a club that he used to come into and hung out and they needed some for Supertramp, so I flew back to L.A. on my day off Their audition, then got the Supertramp gig, uh, and then I did Supertramp you know, from 80 to 80. We did the 82 or 83 tour, uh, 85, so up from 80 to 85-ish, uh, and then uh, in between that, I got called to play with Toto, which was a real thrill for me because, I mean, those guys musically was, you know, they're oh, yeah. about as good as it gets, you know, Jeff and David Page and and, um, you know, Lukather and Mikey and all of them. It was just a great band. That was actually a, an incredible band. You know, Jeff Beccaro. I'm, I'm, I'm like, a, have always been a, a, uh, you know, a time. I'm crazy about time, like the groove and the time. And, I, you know, I eat, drink, sleep metronomes. I had one of the first five Linn drum machines. I was so crazed about <laughs> it. I remember I have to wait to get that. And I got it at the beginning, but really uh, about the time. And so when I got to play with Jeff, it was interesting because... People asked me, what was the best part of playing with Toto? And I said, I got to play cowbell with Jeff Picaro on four tunes, <laughs> <dudes." laughs> which was the greatest. Cause I mean, dude, it was almost like sex because the way he'd groove, I mean, we'd sit there and he, I was mm-hmm. up on this riser here right next to him. And we would just freaking boy that you could just feel that stick oh, yeah. sinking into the groove. Right. And he would just lay it down. And it was so fascinating because you as a drummer, you know, I mean, he could take the, each beat, you know, it's maybe two and four, but the way he slides the kick drum a little behind, a little front, mm-hmm. just these little things, and so, uh, yeah, that was that was great. So Jeff, and then in Toto, and then from Toto, um, you know, I started. I, you know, I've been a serial entrepreneur. I started these <laughs> companies, and from that, it kind of moved into. Uh, you know, I got then got the. I forgot how I got the call. I mean, with with with, with when we did that other Supertramp record. And then Dave called me. I went playing the album. That's how that all kind of came around. Yeah.
2: So did you get to know Diana Ross
1: at all? Oh Yeah. She was actually interesting for me. She was probably one of the biggest mentors to me of all the people. I mean, I learned a lot from her. She was, what was fascinating when I got called to do the gig and I, I really, I was just did this big project. And, um, I, I had my studio in the house and I really didn't want to go on the road, but I got called to do this gig and I figured oh, I can go out for you know a couple months and make some money. I wanted a new console for my studio. So I thought oh, I'll <laughs> go out and do that, right? So I went out there and I remember going into the the first day when rehearsing in in New York, I walked into the rehearsal, she wasn't there. And when she walked in the room, I could not take my eyes off of her. Her magnetism was like something I'd never ever experienced. There was Something about her that was just totally different. And I'd worked with celebrities and did things and been with some raging people, but there was something <laughs> about her presence that was so fascinating. And I couldn't understand it because it was just like the way it was, right? So I remember the first night on the gig, we went out and I was playing in a horn section on that gig, right? And um I was trying to read the charts and I'd look, I kept looking up cause I wanted to check her out. I was trying to see what it was about her. Right. I was trying to, cause I look for patterns. I'm one of those kind of pattern. I use mm-hmm. that as a way to kind of learn things about stuff. So I want to find things that I can replicate. And so I look for things that people do in that sense to kind of help me. So uh, I, I made so many mistakes that night on the gig. So I went back and for the next two days I studied the book and memorized it so that I could just watch her. And I started finding and seeing patterns because she would get, we'd be in there, we'd be doing 16,000, you know, mostly arena kind of a tour. And she would, every single night, she could get everybody on their feet and just rock it. She just owned the audience. And I started noticing things that she would do that were very interesting because as a performer, I was trying to get my performing chops mm-hmm. together and I want, you know, wanted to better my thing and where my, figure out what my, what my thing was, right? Yeah. So, um, she, uh, she would do things like she would, she could get the whole audience rocking and she'd be up there and one night, maybe she's not even her voice isn't that great or whatever. She was such a great performer, but what she did is she started doing things like she would find somebody in the first front row. Right. And she'd drill them, right. Make sure that they knew that she was communicating directly with her, right. Creating that relationship and the front row. And she'd get a, Group of people there, and she would communicate. And they're like, "Whoa!" She, you know, they noticed me. I mean, it's unbelievable. And she would do it, and she would go through the audience, and she would do this. And if somebody was in the back of the stadium holding a sign, she would recognize you with the sign, right? Mm -hmm. And she would just basically go through and do all of that. And I was like, "Wow, what a cool thing!" Right? So that was a great trick. And then the other thing I noticed from her is that the way she was, you know, she was a she was a good dancer, but she wasn't like you know jennifer lopez a (laughs) full-blown dancer kind of a person but she she moved good and stuff but what was so interesting is the way she stood she the 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 way she angled her body the way she stood it was so pleasing to just see her when she was there she just had this grace about the way she stood and everything and i started realizing i I had that saxophone strap around my neck and i'm like man i can't get cool right with that thing around my neck so i went out the next day and i said i gotta do something i said i'm gonna i'm gonna try something so i went to the guitar store and i found a stretch guitar strap right oh yeah yeah and so i put that around you know like a body strap because then i could play my horn i could take that saxophone i could push it down right i could Mm -hmm. i could take my saxophone i could push it down and i could get myself so i could get my (laughs) angles of my body right you know like look cool right and so uh That helped. And then the third thing was, is I always noticed her hair when she was flinging her hair the way it did and how it caught the light. So that's when I grew that crazy-ass mullet I had for a million years. I don't know if you saw some of those pictures when I I played with Spinal Tap in New York, and there's some pictures online, and my hair was down past my butt. But I had one of the original mullets. And they're coming back now. Don't forget. Well, I had one. starting to come
2: I Let's had one out. when I was younger. I'm gonna admit I had one. So I don't know if Jacob yeah. had one. He's only like 12 years old.
1: But... He's ready for his first one. <laughs>
2: I'm growing one. Yeah, Come on, I'm, I'm in the midst of growing a mullet. That's what the hat's
0: covering up right now. <laughs> oh,
1: good, good, good. Yeah, it's that long, short look, right? You can have it. Because yeah, oh, that was a yeah. problem. I didn't want hair because it was always in my eyes. So I said, well, maybe I'll just grow the keep this part short and go this way. And that was early before. I mean, there really weren't many mullets around at that time. I can remember. Uh, I would think I was even before achy breaky heart guy, right? <laughs> <laughs> wow. I do have a,
2: a conspiracy theory question I need to ask you real quick. Oh, oh god! You, Here we you go. You knew Diana Ross. What do you know of the rumors that she was actually Michael Jackson's mother?
1: Oh, I, I'm I'm I've never heard that. I that's kind of hard for me to yeah. I haven't I mean, heard that maybe. either,
0: Jason. I mean, you could
1: a you could definitely question, see Jason. you could definitely see that they could could be, but nah, I don't think there, so. I'm not yeah. sure. There's there's just a
2: conspiracy going around these days that she was actually Michael Jackson's mother, and I can kind of see it, but I don't know. <laughs> maybe, mm-hmm. maybe,
1: right. but I yeah, I'm not sure. I'd go for that one yet. I'm, that one that one would take a little more. But you know, again, I'm free thinking enough that I'm hey bring it, show me how that worked, great. <laughs> cool.
2: Um, there was one thing I wanted to ask you about, and um, you formed a, a, a company called Seventh Level. Yeah. And it was uh, like a, a software company um, mm-hmm. that you guys did some sort of almost like video game type stuff. And oh, yeah. one of the things you did was, uh, uh, it's called an edutainment thingy, uh, CD-ROM <laughs> for Monty Python's Complete Waste of Time.
1: Yeah. So yeah, that company was very interesting. That actually my, probably my favorite thing that I'm most proud of is we did a title. It's called Toonland, and it starred Mm -hmm. Howie Mandel. And it was the first world's first interactive cartoon. And so I directed that and produced that and we built the technologies. My partners were, was Bob Ezrin who produced all the Pink Floyd records and uh, a guy named uh, George Grayson, who was the, it was the CEO of a, one 20th largest software company. And we saw multimedia coming along and we got to do that. And one of the, one of the groups of titles we did besides the, you know, the great reading adventure, the great uh, uh, math adventure and all, all those Howie ties. We did all the Monty Python series. Hmm. So I got to work with the pythons. I actually worked with the pythons for almost 18 years. Wow. Uh, because we all built out, we ended up building out Python line uh, and uh, kind of built all that stuff for them. Um, and uh, you know, uh, we did those CD-ROMs. I was very proud of those. You know, those CD-ROMs won every, we won lots of awards with those. That was some of the hottest games at the time were those Python series of games. And yeah, that company was, uh, was incredible. We started 18 months later. We, we, had a, we had this dancing broom that we were able to prove our technology because we wrote all the technology because it was running on top of Windows. Because mm-hmm. Windows, back in those days, it was DOS. All the gaming was done in DOS and that kind of thing. And then Mac came along and kind of added that graphical user interface. And then Windows came along and kind of did the same thing on top of DOS, right? So that was the idea, but there was really nothing there that could really make it work very well because we were dealing with, you know, uh, uh, 386, 386, 25 megahertz machines, right? Which is a... Nothing with four mega yeah. four meg of RAM. That was actually one of the first computers I had. <laughs> what right. was that? Four mega of RAM. Yep. And we had to figure out how to make animation and stuff. Well, luckily we had built a, my, my partner, George Grayson, um, he, um, big software guy there. Micrographics was his company and was like I said, at the time 20th largest software company in the world. He built out, he designed and built out the very first windows program, uh, for, for the windows PC. It was called windows draw. Uh, so he was really early days with Gates and all that kind of stuff. And um, he, um, I met him. And so we, we, what happened when he, we started the company, he was able to bring part of his team along with him of the best engineers. And they had all worked on Windows. They actually were the team that turned, actually wrote a program called Mirrors, which was Windows that would run on top of the OS2 operating system by IBM. OS2 was trying to make a play to be the next sort of Windows. And they made a deal. So these guys knew the source code, Mm. right? They knew Windows source code, which was great. And they were engine guys. So we were able to write a little engine that would sit on top of Windows that we could, that they knew how to make it work. And we could have all this animation and stuff that we were able to do. So we did this very first animated stuff. And then we got into the Monty Python series. We took that company public. It was a NASDAQ company and it was a great ride. That was really a fun one. Yeah, it was fun, man. Those days of multimedia were great. I was hanging out with, timothy leary and you know all kinds of all these cyberpunk guys in their garages and stuff you know bright and code and yeah it was like a really exciting time and very very interesting moment and i'm just really glad that i got to be you know a part of that And actually there's my one of my other favorite things is there's a book out by um uh, pioneer uh, out of uh of uh is it it's pioneer publishing or whatever and it talks about the 50 pioneers of multimedia and i'm one of them wow <laughs> oh, what are the fifty guys? You know, well, so I just got good, the uh, good the good. Zoom warning that we're
2: coming up on the end of the meeting. We're zooming it up, brother. Um. So Jacob, any last questions for our guests yes. tonight?
0: So I saved the hardest hitting question for last. Obviously, of course. Oh. What do you think about the conspiracy theory that Howie Mandel is actually Jason's father? <laughs>
1: I know Howie, and he told me the whole thing. He did. He told me the whole deal. I'm telling you, dude, it's, I know we don't have any time left. Now I know out. where I mean, get that my story is incredible. So I'll have to come back yeah. and talk about yes. the Howie Mandel story. And it's not a conspiracy, buddy. It's now the, I know where I the, get the, my terminal. You can notice they got from. the same haircut, yeah. right? <laughs> oh, yeah. Same haircut.
2: And I have a habit of putting uh gloves on my head and blowing them up.
1: You're very good at that (laughs) Very nice
2: (laughs) So, uh, man, Scott It has been an absolute pleasure Talking to you tonight I really want to get you on the show again Because we haven't even scratched the surface Of (laughs) all the cool stuff That you've done But just as a parting uh, Question for you What is the one piece of advice you would give anybody Getting into the music industry Just to do half the cool the cool stuff that you've done. How do you? How, what is the the advice? You know, I you think
1: have? the most important thing is to figure out how to. I mean, there's a lot of things. I think today, especially, because I think this is one of the most incredible times as an entrepreneur I've ever seen. Because there's so many problems that need to be done, fixed. But I think really artists need to start thinking. They've got to realize they can't sell music anymore. Mm-hmm. Can't sell music. There's no place to sell it. They can't sell CDs. Can't do that stuff. So I think it's really important that they start to learn uh, business. They yes. need to start taking. So I would say. You know, start learning from those people to do it. start learning about lean startup principles, start learning about growth hacking, start getting educated. I actually teach the thing I taught was called space story plan, army conversion education. So I'd say approach your business like an entrepreneur, learn from those companies that have specific, there's, you know, there's ways of doing all this stuff now that once you get yourself educated, because this is a great time, man. With this device, you've got a worldwide broadcaster in the palm of your hand. Real-time two-way is changing everything. I can build audience. Twitter's a 24-hour cocktail party. I can take the order. Don't be worried. There's incredible opportunities for musicians right now, but they have to get educated. So I think the most important thing is really to start uh, learning how to be a, 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 a business person. doesn't mean you have to do all the work. You might need to build a team, but you at least need to get yourself educated in that. Because sitting around smoking fatties and writing songs all day, <laughs> it's a little tough when you don't have that record business, right? Yeah. It's a different kind of a game. So exactly. those, that will, those that will take advantage of what we have in front of us now, because all this tech and everything, it's embedded in everything. And this is a great time in a lot of ways for certain kinds of musicians that want to really stretch out and turn themselves into a business. Um, so do you have any social media that uh, you you do
2: regularly or... My-
1: my, all my handles are, it's all I A M Scott Page, I A M Scott Page. Uh, Think Experience, which is the immersive entertainment company, which is really cool. We didn't get to talk about that much. And we're getting ready to launch living.live, which is a whole thing. Um, and uh, I'm getting really excited about that because we're reinventing how, what's, where's the new entertainment biz going? Where, how's it going? And I believe that it's going to be based on several things a live performance, but that's going to be limited on people and things, how that's going to be based in this new kind of COVID world streaming, but really focusing on the two-way parts of streaming. How do I bring fans and marry fans from a, in a live situation with fans that are out virtually and in, in video thing? And then the third one is we're taking, you realize I can't hand you something through the screen, but I got a delivery service so yes. I can actually deliver you things before the show. So an example for you guys, you would be in like, oh, hey, I'm meeting up with Scott. Well, Scott got a package and it's like a cool thing from your sponsor or whatever. And then we get to talk about experience. It might be wine taste. It might be some kind of thing. But starting to bring that concept of interactive television together. This is really experience-based medium right now. And I think that opportunities in this space are incredible, especially hyper-local, yeah. right? I think there's opportunities for local things where you can incorporate local vendors and things. and be able to bring stuff delivered and tie a show together and, you know, get the streaming, bring fans into the stream. And yeah, I'm very excited about the space. And I think, uh, uh, you know, I don't think anything's going to go away. You know, if you look at it, the last, we, we basically condensed five to seven years of what, where we thought as a technologist, I thought we would be where we are right now, five years from now. Yeah. The user behavior has completely changed because we all got thrown into this zoom and, FaceTime and a whole new way we're going to operate. Right. So, you know, we can't resist what has happened because what is, is, and so we have to look for new opportunities. And what I would tell all the artists out there, I know it's hard, but right now, because there's so much confusion, there is, that's where the innovation and where the, where the opportunities are lying while everybody's going, Oh, what am I going to do? I lost everything. It's over. What am I going to do? You know? So for an example, for me, the day, that this we found out was everything we were getting ready to do jazz fest this year with think x which is the band that's part of think experience um we were going we we're doing jazz Fest we are going to europe we were in the midst of putting working with put up this 1600 seat massive immersive theater in downtown long beach, in long beach and the next thing thing, everything it was over right yep so i got up in the day and here's my my, my biggest thing is The most important thing anybody can do is my favorite subject is consciousness, right? And reality and all of that. And really, if you understand that the only thing's real is us talking right now, everything else is an illusion. Two minutes ago, done. I can only remember what happened. I can't touch it. Totally illusion. Two minutes from now, maybe. I I don't really know, right? And so the only thing that matters is the step you're taking right now. So when I got up, I just said, okay, everything didn't happen. I lost all these gigs, all our revenue gone, but those were illusions too. They were only thoughts in my head. I think, mean, I don't know, I might've went to New Orleans and fell down and broke my head. I have no idea what would have happened there. Right. Yeah. So I just said, eh, that's it. So I just started thinking, well, where's the market going to go? Where, what is happening right now? What is going to happen? And obviously being lucky enough to be in the tech space for so many years and being a tech guy, that's my thing. And I can see how technology is going to change all this and how we're going to be able to you know, basically teleport fans in a sense to all types of venues. So I just started really working on that concept. And like I said, I think it's the business models are great. Um, remember it only takes, remember a thousand true fan model artist. a true fan is somebody that'll spend $100 a year on you. If you have 1000 fans that will spend $100 over a year, there's your first hundred thousand dollars in revenue. So anyway, start learning, get out there. Google is your, is your school. You can learn a ton, go to town. I see our thing is going to run out and here we go.
2: (laughs) Well, thank you for, for joining us tonight. Mr. Scott page it has been
1: absolutely
2: awesome. We'll have you on again. I promise. I want to have you back anytime, man. It
1: was fun talking to you guys. And thank you very much for having me on your show. Yo, to all the Twitchers out there. Yes, thank
2: you guys. Yeah, thank you for coming. If you want to email us, email us at at gmail.com and give us money at patreon.com slash ompodcast.
1: Give those guys money. Yes. Give them money. We need to keep these guys on the air.
2: Yes, I agree with that. <laughs> <laughs>